This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great honor and privilege to speak to Dr. Ana Fagotti, who is currently at the Fundazione Policlinico Universitario Gemelli in uh, Rome, Italy. Ana, welcome. Hi, Pedro. Welcome to, ev uh, to everyone to this nice podcast, I hope so. And uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss all issues regarding this study. Anna, it's, uh, it's always obviously a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, I always learn a tremendous amount. This is, uh, this is really a, an important occasion. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the SCORPION trial, uh, a randomized trial of primary debulking surgery versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy for advanced epithelial ovarian cancer, which is a lead article in the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. So, um, Anna, I wanted to start... Uh, first question. Uh, you know, certainly there have been a total of uh, three, uh, at least, prospective randomized trials exploring upfront surgery uh, versus uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy in patients with advanced ovarian cancer. The ERTC trial, the CHORUS trial, and then uh, the Japanese uh, clinical oncology group trial. Um, none of these have shown that surgery is superior to chemotherapy in uh, patients with advanced ovarian cancer. So my, qu my first question is, uh, wh what was the reason for you and your team uh, performing this important trial? So thank you very much, uh, Pedro, for this question, which is, which is very important because I don't have so many opportunities to explain why we decided to do this trial. And so, uh, first, uh, uh, the results from these previous trials we have mentioned are, yes, interesting, but as you all know, they are limited due to patient's heterogeneity, uh, in example, disease stage or performance status, uh, low site reduction rate in the primary debulking surgery arm, and the low accrual percentage. And you also know that the Japanese trial has a, an atypical design because they allowed interval debulking surgery in the primary debulking surgery arm, and this actually occurred in at least one-third of the cases. Mm -hmm. um, moreover, the Japanese trial, as well the course trial, were not published at the time the protocol was designed. And I think this is very important because this can explain the reason for designing a new trial um, to clarify the best primary treatment options for um, epithelial ovarian cancer with advanced tumor by overcoming the limitations of the previous study. So, Enam, you know, one of the things that uh, I noticed in, uh, in the aim of the study was to determine if neoadjuvant chemotherapy was superior to primary debulking, uh, evaluating progression-free survival, and, and some my question as to why uh, you decided to perform a superiority uh, study rather than a non-inferiority uh, trial. Yes, and this comes directly with, together with the previous question. So, uh, again, at the time the study was designed, the RTC trial in 2010 was the only trial published. And so the hypothesis and the calculation we made were made actually based on a post-hoc analysis of the RTC trial, which suggested that the overall survival in stage four patients was longer in the neoadjuvant population with respect to the primary debulking surgery group. And this result 
uh, these results have been recently confirmed with the individual patient meta-analysis of the LCC and CORUS trial together with mm -hmm. another ratio of 0.76. So considering that patients with high tumor load are more similar to stage 4 disease than stage 3 with small tumor volume, it was clear to us to design a superiority trial. Absolutely. Okay. Very well. So let's get into the methods. Um, who was included and who was excluded from the SCORPION trial? Okay. So patients were considered preoperatively eligible if they had suspicious advanced ovarian cancer and disease at metastatic site supposed to be completely resectable based on imaging and clinical assessment. All eligible patients were triaged for staging laparoscopy to obtain a histological diagnosis and to provide the tumor load assessment through the predictive index score. Mm -hmm. Therefore, intraoperative inclusion criteria were histological diagnosis of epithelial ovarian cancer at frozen section analysis and diffused intra-abdominal disease assessed by laparoscopy with a score between 8 and 12, mm -hmm. and absence of mesenteric refraction. Patients were randomized at time of laparoscopy when all inclusion criteria were met. And if primary debulking surgery was, was chosen, then open cytoreduction was performed at the same time of uh, randomization. And Anna, one, one of the things that I, I noticed also uh, was you mentioned um, in the in the study that the use of bevacizumab uh, was routinely performed after 2014. I believe it was January of 2014. Um, and one question I wanted just for clarification: in patients who underwent neoadjuvant chemotherapy, was bevacizumab routinely included in the management of those patients in your um, uh, inclusion criteria? Yes, it was, of course, unless the patients had major contraindication to the use of PET. So, uh, as you can see um, from the study itself, almost all patients after January received BEV except for five. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned also on the predictive uh, index uh, score, and I believe you mentioned um, that it was between 8 and 12. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about, uh, you know, certainly the evaluation by laparoscopy, specifically detailing what were the criteria for consideration of no surgery? So when when designed the study, um, the, we included uh, uh, in the score seven parameters that were peritoneal carcinomatosis, uh, mental cake, diaphragmatic carcinomatosis, superficial liver metastasis, uh, stomach infiltration, bowel infiltration, and mesenteric refraction. So if you consider that a score of two is given on to each parameter, then a score of 14 or presence of mesenteric refraction only were considered as intraoperative reasons for not proceeding neither with randomization nor with surgery. The presence of distant unresectable metastasis or a NICOP status higher than two were preoperative criteria for no eligibility in the trial. Okay. And uh, you also mentioned, I believe, that you um, perform a quality of life uh, evaluation. And I, uh, I think I recall there were two 
uh, specific tools that you use. Can you tell us a little bit more about those uh, quality of life assessments and, and also how frequently were these evaluated? Yes, we, we decided to use uh, the ARTC quality of life questionnaire that were the QLQC30 and the ovarian cancer specific quality of life questionnaire that was the QLQ of 28. And these were completed at the study entry the fourth cycle after primary debulking surgery or before interval debulking surgery according to different arms at the sixth cycle and six months after the last cycle of chemotherapy. We published preliminary results on the European Journal of Cancer, I think it was in 2016, and we mm -hmm. are planning to give you more information in the next, uh, in the next publication. Great. Um, now let's let's move on to sample size and, and sample size calculation. Um, what level of uh, progression-free survival was used uh, when determining the sample size uh, calculation? And also, do you consider that you had enough patients in the study to determine a difference in oncologic outcomes? Yeah. So um, again, when we calculated the sample size, we referred to the RTC study where the prog median progression-free survival was 12 months in both arms, actually, primary debulking surgery and natural chemotherapy. And um, so um, we considered now an average ratio of 0 0.50. Uh, in the natural chemotherapy with an alpha of 0.05, power 8% and 10% of dropout rate. So we imagined that 166 patients were needed to detect 120 recurrences in the study population. Now, we enrolled 171 patients and we observed 142 recurrences with a median follow-up of 59 months. And uh, although our average ratio corresponds to an eight-month increase uh, in the median progression-free survival, which means from 12 to 20 months, with the 142 events collected for the analysis, the study had 66% power to detect the 0.67 average ratio, which corresponds to a six-month increase in progression-free survival from 12 to 18 months. And this power was significantly lower to detect a four-month difference in median progression-free survival. Mm -hmm. That's all. Okay. So now let's, uh, let's move on to the results. Obviously, as I mentioned before, three previous trials that show uh, no difference between uh, surgery and uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, so I was wondering, pertaining to the SCORPION trial, um, can you particularly focus on, on your findings uh, related to disease-free and overall survival? And, of course, obviously the question that always comes up, um, can you speak about the results in patients who underwent complete debulking surgery? Yes. Yes, thank you, Pedro. I think these are the most interesting results. Uh, so, actually, we found a median progression-free survival of 15 months for, for patients assigned to primary debulking surgery compared to 14 months to patients uh, assigned to natural chemotherapy, and the other ratio here was 1.05. The median overall survival was 41 months for patients in the PDS arm, with respect to 43 months in patients in the natural arm, and the other ratio here was uh, 1.12. 
The exploratory analysis of the study population according to residual tumors showed a longer, significantly longer, progression-free and overall survival in completely resected patients with respect to women with any residual tumor. And this confirms that complete cytoreduction remains the most important prognostic factor in women with advanced ovarian cancer and with high tumor load. However, when we analyzed it uh, um, according to the randomization arm, no differences were found uh, between PDS and NERG and chemotherapy, thus suggesting that complete resection is effective independently from the timing of surgery, at least uh, in this selected group of patients. So, and um, Anna, you know, you, you certainly, you showed that the, the rate of complete resection, or R0, uh, in uh, PDS, or primary debulking surgery, uh, was 47%, and then 77% for interval surgery. So obviously, you know, certainly this, this is an always that also frequently comes up where some might say, well, you know, 47% upfront R0 is too low. Um, how would you respond to, to that argument? Thank you, Pedro. And, you know, this is a very uh, nice question because it's, it's funny that some people say these are patients that should have never been operated on, and the others say you could more, you could respect more. So it's important to underline that in the PDS arm, patients had an elitist score of surgical complexity of three in 89% of the cases, and mm. an upper abdominal procedure rate in 98.8%. And the median operative time was four hours and 60 minutes. No, four, sorry, 460 minutes. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't think we should, could, we could more than, do more than this to reach our zero. And I hope that this trial has definitely clarified that these patients that you can easily identify by laparoscopy have no benefit from aggressive surgery. So now, what, what were some of the main reasons, and I don't know if you specifically looked at this, but what were some of the main reasons for not achieving complete cytoreductive surgery? Yes, we look at the reasons, and actually I think it's a supplemental table in the, in the, in, in the paper. And the most frequent reason for residual disease from 1 to 10 millimeters was the presence of miliary carcinomatosis, uh, which was uh, present in around one-fourth of all patients with residual disease. So showing that this is the most frequent reason, both at PDS and IDS. Mm -hmm. Then we had 6% uh, of the cases with residual disease at the hepatic hilum and 4% with retroperitoneal residual disease, and these are, were all patients at primary debulking surgery. So again, thank you for the question, because uh, people easily translate these results and say, come on, we are able to do this, we are able to resect um, hepatic hilum. It's not true that you cannot do it. Yes, of course. If we had this rate of residual disease in these places, doesn't mean that we never resected the hepatic hyaluma mm -hmm. or retroperitoneal disease. This is not written in the paper. So there were almost all the same, uh, it's the same rate of patients being resected in that places. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you got a, an opportunity to uh, clarify that. And Anna, was there, a, what was the median number of chemotherapy cycles in each group, was it different? 
And also, as a secondary question, was there a difference between the groups as it pertains to the administration of uh, bevacizumab? So the median number of chemotherapy was six in both arms, and the difference was not statistical significance, of course. Okay. Uh, in the arm uh, B, which was the one of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the three um, operative median number of cycles was four, and carboplatin plus Lifraxel every three weeks was the most common chemotherapy schedule utilized. Um, Bevacizuma was included in 40% of the cases in the PDS arm and 49% of the cases in the arm B, which was natural chemotherapy, but this difference was not statistically significant. I think it's also interesting the fact that probably some people can argue that if you use uh, more BEV in the management se uh, setting, then you may have a complete, a higher rate of complete gross residual tumor, right. which may happen. But if you look at the data from the Antalya trial, comparing uh, the complete gross resection rate between BEV yes and BEV no, and it was a randomized control trial actually, mm -hmm. the arm using uh, um, BEV had a complete resection rate of 58.6%. We report a complete resection rate of 77%. So I don't think BEV is the only explanation for reaching such a high uh, rate. Yeah. Complete reception. Yeah, and I know I, I noticed that um, you you reference a post-operative death rate of uh, from complications of uh, eight point three percent in patients who underwent upfront surgery. Is this consistent with the literature, or would you consider this to be to be high? Yes, again, thank you, Pedro, for this question, which is very important and gives me the opportunity to clarify some calculations. So we had seven of 84 women, which correspond to 8.3% mm -hmm. of patients in the PDSR dying due to post-operative complication. And in particular, we had three early and four late deaths and compared to none in the management arm. And this difference is statistically significant. If we look at the mortality rate reported from the other randomized control trial in the PDS, including the RCC trial, the CARS trial, the Japanese trial, and even the LION trial, if we want, which is more um, recent, mm -hmm. this mortality rate ranges from 0 0.7 in the Japanese trial to 8.3 in the Scorpion trial. And so I want to highlight some points. The first one is that in the last publication from the Japanese trial, very recent, uh, they reported 27.2% of abdominal organ resection with respect to 99% of upper abdominal surgery we had in our study. Mm. And they had only 12% of complete cytoreduction with respect to 47.6% that we reached in the Scorpion trial. Mm. The other point is that most of the study report only early mortality within 30 days only, mm -hmm. which was in our trial 3.5%, mm -hmm. with respect to 6% in the CORUS, 2.5% in the RCC, and 2% in the LION trial. So, in conclusion, Considering the different populations selected and the aggressiveness of surgery we did, I think this is a good result. And when, let me say this, um, when I discussed it with some friends, mm -hmm. they said, yes, please, 
ask what our resurrection rate because at the end <laughs> we were able to resurrect some people, <laughs> you know, alive again, like, even after surgery. So this is really a great effort, and I think we had a very good result, even in terms of mortality, at yeah. least early mortality. Yeah, I'm glad you, you, you got to clarify that as well. Um, now, uh, with regards to the reasons for your finding, I'm, I was particularly interested as to the median survival of the Scorpion trials, for, uh, I believe it was 43 months, uh, better than the ERTC and the, and the Chorus trials. Um, what, what do you think are the reasons for that? Yeah, uh, so um, uh, this, the, um, the ERTC trial and the Chorus trial reported about 27 months of overall survival, uh, which is actually reported even in the individual patient meta-analysis, which was published recently. Mm -hmm. um, and this seems to be the result, this difference seems to be the result of several trials with target-based drugs of recurrent disease, which uh, have been performed during the study period. It is also possible that the improved overall survival and progression-free survival observed in the Scorpion trial reflects the selected study population that is significantly younger and has a better performance status compared to the RTC and CORUS trial. Mm -hmm. Indeed, our overall survival results are comparable to those reported by the Japanese trial, uh, even though we have some racial differences, but these are two, mm, uh, mm, two trials made at the same time, uh, mm -hmm. and these are the most recent uh, um, uh, results mm -hmm. of overall survival in the ovarian cancer population. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, um, there's an, an interesting point you, you make in the, in the discussion, um, and I'm going to read directly. It says, patients with R0, and R1 to 10 millimeters of primary debulking surgery have superimposable median progression-free survival, suggesting that patients with high tumor load, completely resected at the time of surgery, likely have microscopic or macroscopic unrecognized residual disease. Can you uh, explain a little bit more as to what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, now mm, we have a, another example from this, uh, uh, which is similar to this experience, which is the example from the lion trial. You know, we always have microscopic disease behind in ovarian cancer tumor, uh, it, um, advanced disease. Um, so even though we go uh, for, we, we look for a complete resection, we may still have first microscopic disease, somewhere because we, we never know if we have clear margins uh, in mm -hmm. this type of, of tumors. And the second point is that, you know, we have some data from postoperative CT scans showing some uh, residual disease in some places. We never know if it's true or not. But anyway, it may happen that we still have some disease, especially when we are going to operate such a large and diffused tumor. So I think this might be possible, and this can be an explanation uh, for having similar superimposable progression-free survival in these two uh, populations. Uh, alternatively, the aggressive behavior of the disease and the immunodepression induced by aggressive surgery may result in superimposable progression-free survival rates independently from residual tumor. Yeah, interesting. 
Um, now, you know, you mentioned that most patients, or I believe all, all the patients that had interval uh, surgery had open surgery. So I'm going to take advantage, obviously, of the fact that, uh, that I have you um, here on this podcast. And I was going to ask you, what, what are your thoughts on the use of laparoscopy to perform interval set of reductive surgery? Yes. Uh, so I think that this is an opportunity that surgeons must consider when treating patients at time of interval debarking surgery. Indeed, uh, thanks to uh, the availability of new drugs in the setting of management treatment, we are supposed to have more and more responses which can benefit of a minimal invasive approach, which has been demonstrated to be feasible by several authors uh, without affecting uh, the rate of residual disease. Um, so if we know and we accept that complete resection rate is the most important prognostic factor even at interval debarking surgery, then we may argue that it will not affect even survival. However, I think it's our responsibility to verify if this approach has a negative impact or not on survival by a well-designed randomized control trial as the last trial is. Mm -hmm. So then now, um, yeah, certainly, obviously, we, we do await uh, the, the results of the LANS trial just uh, recently started. So um, we'll take this opportunity also to invite all institutions who are interested in participating in that uh, trials, a uh, prospective randomized trial uh, for interval uh, of reduction comparing open versus minimally invasive. Um, now, I wanted to ask you, obviously, uh, what do you see as some of the main limitations of the SCORPION trial? Yes, I think that we have discussed some of them. Just to remember, I think the main limitation is related to the lack of statistical power to detect the minimal difference, as we have discussed. Mm -hmm. Some others have also argued that the monocentric design of the study uh, reduces the generalization of the results. However, I think that other surgical studies, including only accredited centers or skilled surgeons, may have the same problem. Mm -hmm. And I also think that the single center design can be considered a strength thanks to the homogeneity of the treatment and completeness of data. Others have claimed that the high number of ostomies we reported, which was around 30 percent, is mm. a limitation. But I'm not sure this is an argument to assess the quality of surgery or the quality of a study, but rather a philosophy of a single center. Mm -hmm. And finally, we have discussed the, the mortality rate issues already. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so then Anna, that brings me to, to the question. Now, with, with the publication of the SCORPION trial, uh, four trials now have demonstrated no benefit of upfront surgery compared to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. What should we learn from this, and, and how should these results impact our practice moving forward? Yes, thank you, Pedro, because I think that looking at all the trials together, we might conclude very easily that all patients with advanced epithelial ovarian cancer are candidates for natural chemotherapy. That's one, one way to see the, the question. On the other hand, we know that each of these studies has some limitation. And I think that the SCORPION trial is the only one with clear selection criteria 
and acceptable rates of resection according to international guidelines. So I think it really represents the way toward personalized treatment, even in the setting of surgery. And therefore, in our institution, we offer Nelsbank chemotherapy to patients with a laparoscopic score higher than eight if they have a high-grade epithelial non-mucinous tumor mm -hmm. and no low-grade, of course. Yeah. And now, then, again, the next trial, let's talk about that. We know that the, the TRUST trial has completed accrual. Um, I'm not going to ask you what you think is going to show, because obviously that's speculation, but... Um, do you have any thoughts as to when we should anticipate the results to be available? And my next question after that is, what if it shows that there is no difference in the outcomes? So what I know, I think it's what people know, uh, that is uh, the cruel has been completed in August uh, 2019, uh, and uh, the estimated completion is on April 2023. Mm -hmm. uh, the primary overall, uh, the primary point is overall survival, and patients need to be followed up for a minimum of five years to reach the primary point. So I think there are some differences with the other trials. Here we have no age limitation. The ECOG uh, should be uh, status should be less than two. The stage starts from three B, and we have no assessment for tumor load. So if uh, we will have no differences uh, from this trial, I think I would like to see a subgroup analysis to verify by tumor load or stage to verify mm -hmm. the results of the Scorpion trial and understand if they can be exported even to other setting of patients. And I think that if this is the case, the next step would be for sure to increase survival rates in the patients uh, having management chemotherapy and uh, to identify early markers for chemo resistance. I think this should be the next goal for a trial uh, for the primary setting in ovarian cancer patients. Yeah. And I, it, this is always obviously very, very informative, and I and I learn so much every time uh, I speak with you. Um, we're we're coming to to the final minutes of our podcast. Uh, I wanted to um, again congratulate you, and uh, and certainly um, ask if you had any closing remarks you would like to make to our audience. No, I mean uh, I think it's always difficult to do a surgical study, and. Um, I hope there will be more and more because we really need to have some answer and we need funds and we need people who believe still in surgery because we can make the difference every day, every time, in any setting of patients. Uh, so thank you very much for the opportunity to share with you and all people following our journal this uh, experience. Thank you very much. Anna, thank you so much, and uh, once again, congratulations on all the work you have done, and uh, more importantly, the great contributions that you have made and continue to make for the care of women with gynecologic cancers. Uh, you should be extremely uh, proud of the, the amazing contributions you have made to our field. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you very much.